Thank you for that song and for the first message, brother. And for the comments afterwards, brother John, I thought of of how Christ, the humiliation of Christ was very real right there. Well, we welcome each one of you here to this part of the service. I trust that the Lord can speak to each one of our hearts like he has to mine already this morning, and he can do that again. And um, thank you for your visitors. I know this is a special event, and uh, I don't have a baptism message per se, but um, it is a, a blessing to have that to look forward to. I do have uh, an object lesson I'd like to do first. Probably familiar thing to you, but I want to make an object out of this uh, upright thing here that's standing so tall. And um, so we're going to uh, give an object lesson, okay? Put this on top. And my, I'm getting taller, am I not? You can think about a Bible verse that this will demonstrate, and when it's all done and said and done, maybe you can give me uh, what you think it might mean. But I see this thing sort of getting higher, standing taller, and it's looking better all the time. Looking better all the time. Until now, what Bible verse do you think this demonstrates? <laughs> yeah, well, that's not the one I had in mind. I heard it from here, though. It was too quiet. No one else heard it. Can you say it louder? <laughs> that's right, yes. Maybe you could uh, rivet our minds. So um, that verse is, of course, found in Proverbs, but we won't turn there. That's just uh, the theme that I have. Before we go on, let us do pause for a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are our sufficiency that you are our grace to us and that by uh, by your stripes we are healed and it's by your goodness and it's by your sacrifice that we have a standing before you. And Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would instruct us from your word this morning, that you would bless us and grace us, Lord, with both spiritual understanding and a heart to receive it. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Yeah, we might ask the question, what has gotten in mankind that wants to lift himself up to be high, to be known, to be successful, to be the first, to be the best, to be recognized as whatever? C.H. Spurgeon said that pride is woven, this is old English, I believe, in the very warp and whoop of our character. I don't know if that's English words or not, but it, it makes sense, right? It makes sense. Pride is, is woven in our very character. Nebuchadnezzar was that man that said, is this not? The great Babylon that I have built with my might, with my power, and for the honor of my majesty. And you can translate that to whatever you do, whether you're building your kingdom or your family for yourself. It was the Pharisee that prayed. I thank thee, Lord, that I'm not like other men. They look at the performance of their own life in contrast to others and feel very good about themselves. Like the Jews in Isaiah's day that said, Stand by thyself. Don't come near me. I'm holier than thou. Religious pride. Which one of us can plead innocence? Of that. It was Jesus' very own disciples who wanted to be first in his kingdom. They were asked to be on either side of him. The the drive in man to to control or to to be to manage others from a position of power. And it's even in Christian ministry. The early church exhibited pride. The early church? Yes. Laodicea. I'm full. I am enriched. I'm increased with good. And the telling statement, I have need of nothing, is the full expression of pride. In fact, It was boasting in a fashion not very unsimilar to Nebuchadnezzar. Peter was proud when he said, Though all men forsake you, I won't. He fell flat. And so will you and I with pride in our hearts. So the question for you And for me, am I a proud person? Do I have proud tendencies in my heart? Or does it matter if I am or not? Turn to the verse that birthed this message in 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5 at verse 5 to 7. We'll read a few verses here. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. 
Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Benita asked me if what I'd be uh, sharing about this week, and I told her, and she said, didn't you recently have a message on humility? I said, no, I don't remember I did. But then I remembered that one illustration that I used. Um, that famous preacher, Harry Ironside, how he was convicted about his lack of humility, so he put one of those despised sandwich boards over his head with uh, writing on the front and writing on the back. And here he is. He, he's an older man. He's a citywide, maybe worldwide known preacher and, and a teacher in a school. And he puts one of these sandwich boards on and he walks around the city streets hollering out scripture verses and when he goes back he does that because he, he feels he needs some humility in his heart so this is one way to get it and he goes back and he says boy I bet there's not anyone else in this city who would do that and I remember yeah I had that I, I, I had that illustration well what did I oh yeah the last time that uh, Warren Eshelman was here I had about interpersonal relationships and how humility is essential in good relations. Yes, I did have it. So, the question is, is it overkill to speak about it again? Well, the Bible says that God hates divorce. And we take a pretty firm stand against Because God hates it. We don't tolerate it. We don't tolerate divorce and remarriage because that's not God's plan. Well, God hates pride too. You know that. These six things does the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination to him. And the one, number one is the proud look. That's in Proverbs 6.16. Proverbs 8.13 says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And here's evil. Pride, arrogancy, and the evil way, and a frovert mouth do I hate. So, I don't know. I trust it's not overkill to have a message on a similar subject within a few months' time. But this verse here in Peter where he says, God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. And that's the portion of the verse that I meditated on. God resists the proud. Now, I ask the question, are you a proud man or not, a proud woman or not, or where are you? Let it be known that God resists the proud. He opposes the proud. The Bible says the devil, when he lifted himself up and said, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to be this, and I'm going to be that, God threw him out, and it was, it was done. Then after Adam and Eve sinned, it says, and God, he drove out the man, and at the east of the garden, 
he of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Here you have Adam and Eve thrown out of the garden because of their sin. And now you have an angel standing guard. Anyone who wants to come into that garden is going to have to go past that angel. 20 years ago, probably a little more than that, we were in a cell group with Luke Eby leading out. And one evening, the topic was on utopia. Luke, you, you, many, some of you know Luke, and he, he's, he's, he's an unusual individual, and so he had unusual topics. Topic, now we're going to have, we're going to speak about utopia, okay, <laughs> and the subject, and what people want. And, um, and the idea is, in the Garden of Eden, there, there was a utopia. You know what a t- utopia is. It's, it's when everything is perfect. It, nothing can be wrong. You can have, well, it, we'll get there. So anyhow, in the Garden of Eden, there was utopia. It was destroyed when man sinned. And ever since that, mankind has been looking for a way back into that garden. They have been trying to get uh, financial societal utopia, financial uh, government, um, any kinds, many kinds of utopia, trying to get something together that will finally work. But God says, there is, a, there is someone I'm opposing. There, no one's going to get back into that garden except by my appointed way. There's an angel standing guard, and nobody's going to get to this utopia. By themselves, because God opposes it. And because God opposes it, it's not going to happen. So when God resists the proud, he is successful. No one is successful in overcoming God's resistance. So um, I am thinking of in school, there was this Spanish explorer who was a, uh, came to the New World, America. He actually came to Florida because he had heard, there was rumored that there was a fountain of life in Florida where if you, take, if you dip into this fountain, you're going to live forever. So he believed it enough to come look for it. Pouncy de Leon or something like that his name was. And, but he wasn't successful. He was successful in exploring, but he was not successful in what he wanted. So God is able to resist I never went through a military checkpoint. The closest I ever did was going delivering at a military prison. And uh, I came up to this building at the entrance where the guards are at. You don't get into this prison or into this complex without going past the guards. And there was a sign that said, um, the right lane is for prison employees, and left lane is for uh, deliveries. Okay. Well, I looked at, there were two little real narrow lanes there to the right of the guard shack, and I thought, I can't get a truck in there, so I go left. Okay, that must mean going around the other way. And I found real soon out that that was the wrong way. In fact, this was the, this was the, uh, the uh, base, the army base, that actually several years ago, where someone had actually tried to penetrate it and and 
sabotage it. I don't know exactly what the, the but they got a, they discovered it before it happened. And I found real soon that I was opposed, <laughs> and uh, I didn't press any more buttons. <laughs> it was time to stop. And he told me, you know, you're at a military base. You you've got to do things the way it's done. Okay, yeah, no problem. So God is able to oppose the humble, and he is, I mean, able to oppose the proud. He is able to do that, and he will do that, and he will do that for you. The contrast is, is God is able, or is that God gives grace to the humble. Now, the opposite of to resist is to give. The two are not the same. And in the same way that God is able to successfully resist, he is able to successfully give because he is God. Now, he is he gives grace. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Well, what are you getting when you get grace? Uh, there grace many many times grace is put in narrow slots and it means this or it means that but grace is broad i i chosen this morning the best way i can is in two ways it grace is god's favor and god's favors god's favor and god's favors his favor is his smile on you it is his delighting in you. It's when he is pleased to be near you. God's favor. Instead of opposing God, opposing you, you got his favor. You get his favor. And you get God's favor. And he's disposed to uh, like you. I know I'm using earthly term, but I, I, I'm, I'm struggling with language. When he, when someone likes you, they're also disposed to bless you. And you can think of a marriage relationship where, where you have someone who they're either opposing each other or else they are, they like each other. And you can see the difference there. Actually, the best illustration I could think of considering this favorable attitude when God, he, when he's disposed to like you, he gives you gifts and he gives you uh, blessings and he gives you power and he gives you victory and he gives you grace. Well, the best illustration I could think of is Queen Esther when she came uninvited into Haman's, not Haman's, King Ahasuerus' court. She, the, you know, the whole story about the Jews were in trouble and someone had to go before the king and make an appeal. And you didn't go before the king. You couldn't do that unless you were invited. And she took the risk. And she came before the king. And if he puts up that scepter, she's welcome. It's his favor. If he does not give it up, he is in disfavor. And the one is life and the other is death. And she came in uninvited. And he held up her scepter. That means she got his favor. And what else did she get? She said, what do you want? Up to half my kingdom. See, there, there you get a good picture. You got, you got an audience from the king, and you got what the king has. 
That is grace. The best way I can explain it this morning is if God uh, gives grace to the humble, you get God and you get what he has. That's grace. For the humble, God holds out his scepter. Not only does he grant you his presence, but he lavishes you with his gifts. And uh, this is one I almost thought was going to be read this morning, but I'm going to read it. We did sing a song very much like it. Isaiah 57:15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place. And with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Now, that was given in a context where there was vast apostasy in the nation of Israel. God wasn't going to come down. He was not going to compromise his character. God is God. So he's high and holy. But there were some in Israel with a contrite and an humble spirit. And God said, I'm going to come. I'll dwell with you. Even in the midst of a wicked nation. And what will he do? Then he will revive. He will come with his presence and then he will come with his blessing. He will revive the spirit of the humble and revive the heart of the contrite ones. I will dwell with them and I will gift them with a revived spirit. So God's favor, it's his unmerited favor. It is his undeserved favor. All God's gifts to us as people are unmerited and un, um, undeserved. But the humble, they get it. They get those gifts. A proud person doesn't necessarily need God. He can pull himself up by his own bootstraps. He has resources that are sufficient. To meet the needs of the day. Oh. Maybe we're not quite happy. With the way things are. But. If we could get our own way. We would be. And maybe with a little bit of elbowing. And a little bit of conniving. A little bit of manipulation. I'll get it. I'll get it. I'll make it. But an humble person is truly bankrupt. He does not have. The resources needed for the day, and he's keenly aware of it. But the humble person is looking at a resource outside of himself and is dependent on that resource. A freedom from pride and freedom from arrogance comes or grows out of a recognition that all we have and all that we are comes from God. And I'm going to look at one example. A very, very familiar verse in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourself, it is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So how are we saved? Well, we're saved by grace. Well, where does grace come from? It comes from God. It's his gift. It's unearned. 
To whom does grace come to? Well, in this context, it comes to those who have faith. And in the Peter's context, it comes to those who are humble. Actually, there are very complementary attitudes of heart because someone who has faith in God is looking at a resource outside of himself. Now, the contrast here in Ephesians is your own works, not of works, lest any man should boast. Where do works come from? Well, works come from ourselves. It's it's the thing you've done or the way you live your life. I, I don't know what, what it's like up there in Pottsville there for sure, but I imagine you see this all the time. The works mentality of salvation. The, it's the way you live your life. It's the way you treat others. It's the way you are doing things that you feel is good enough. It's, I, it's okay. Like my former employee I used to work with, he used, I talked with him and he, I, I treat people with respect. I, I'm nice to people if they deserve it. I'm an upbuilding member of society. Society, basically, he didn't say this to me, but I could tell in his mind. No, society is better because I'm here. I, I, I'm not one of those who tear society. I'm an upbuilding member of society. Now, it's true I had an accident while driving drunk once. Now, it's true I am divorced and remarried. And it's true I left my second wife one time for a couple of days when she didn't comply with some of the things I insisted on. And when she gave in, then I moved back. But I'm a good person. I am a good person because I treat other people with respect and dignity and honor. Well, do I? No, he's not a good person. He's a proud person. He has not humbled himself under the mighty hand of God, and he's resting in his own puny works, which he thinks are so mighty. And maybe this is you. I don't know. You say, okay, I'm not perfect. But I'm pretty good. No, you're not. You're proud. If you're depending on those works. True humility is like a child, Jesus said. We could go into Matthew 18 where the disciples were arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus brought a child in the midst and said, except You become, as a little child, you cannot even enter the kingdom of heaven. When it's tax time, I got to write down on the tax paper how many dependents I have. I don't have to. I actually want to. I don't know. Maybe you might know why. (laughs) The question is asking how many people depend on me, on my income. For their support. There are some people in my home who are not economically self-sufficient. They depend primarily on me for their food and clothing and shelter. And this is a picture of humility. In other words, they are dependent. Dependence. They are dependent on somebody to take care of them because of where they're at in their station in life. And I think that is actually probably as I heard many illustrations about 
what it, what it means to be a little child and what that entails. And, and I'm not sure if I'm right, but I like the idea that a child is a dependent. It, it depends on others for its care. It could not survive on its own. Well, you have these street children that I've heard horrible stories already in some countries where they're the, as little as, as young as three or four years old. They're out on the street and they've got to fend for themselves. And some of them don't make it, obviously not. But they need someone to take care of them. An humble person is God-dependent. That's what humility is, primarily. He or she is part of God's family, enjoying the benefits of the heavenly table. You know, my children don't get up in the morning and wonder if they need to go out into the woods and dig roots or something to eat breakfast when they get hungry. They have confidence that they will be provided for. Sure, they have responsibilities. But it's not because they fulfill those responsibilities perfectly that they get fed at my table. They get fed at my table because they are my dependents. And um, and I know it breaks down a little bit, but the humble heart, first of all, recognizes that, God, you have what I need, and I do not have what I need. Therefore, I will come to you, and I will depend on you to provide what I need. He recognizes, that first of all, All that I am and all that I have comes from God. And we have a verse for that. 1 Corinthians 4, chapter 4 and verse 7. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hast not received it? Why dost thou glory as if you didn't get it from God? And you know that word glory is the same word as boast in Ephesians. (laughs) Why do you boast as it's something you have? You got it from God, but you took that honor to yourself. Now you are a proud person. Recognizing who God is will humble us. And recognizing who we are will humble us also if we really see that. James says we are just a vapor. A little bit of steam. A little fog in the valley. It'll be gone soon. We're like a flower that blooms for one bloom and then we decay and we're gone. You know, you see celebrities and how they with all their glitz and all their glamour, they're, they're, they're glorying in what they got. Give them X many years, they'll be gone. Recognizing who we are will humble us. In ourselves, we have no value. I could photocopy a $100 bill, cut it out, right size, give it to you, how much is it worth? Nothing. 
But if that $100 bill is printed by the U.S. Treasury and has their stamp and everything on it, how much is it worth? Well, it's worth a couple tanks of gas or one tank, depending on what vehicle you have. We are valuable because we come from the treasury of heaven. We have infinite and eternal worth. But it's only because we are connected to God that we have value. That connection off, you know, I, I pity the poor atheist who, who tried to somehow drum up human dignity and human worth and even human purpose when it's disconnected from God. Uh, they, all kinds of argument, all kinds of reasonings makes no sense. Outside of God, it makes no sense. But in God's economy, we are worth the world. Yet, pride is the attitude of that piece of paper that was copied from a $100 bill. And that piece of paper and pride says, I'm worth something. Just that piece, but it, 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 the whole pride separated from God, you're just, a, you're just a piece of paper. And it'd be the same as saying, I really don't need a U.S. Treasury to back me up. And I say, how foolish that is. So the, one of the reasons I'm bringing this out between us and God is because only when we have a proper view of God and we contrast it with a proper view of oneself can we relate properly to other people on the level of humility. In other words, we could have had a message where it say, well, how do you be humble? You don't, well, you don't dress ostentatiously. You don't, you know, and, and on and on we could go. But that is actually an outgrowth of a reality of who we are before God. Now I would like to finish the rest of the message this morning by contrasting three different heart realities. It's been said that pride is the only disease that makes everyone sick but the person who has it. Now that is true sometimes, but not normally. For the most part, pride is much more camouflaged than that. It's not most of the time like that old country song, which I hope you don't listen to. It's hard to be humble if you're perfect in every way. And then he goes on to say how he would have a lot of friends, but they're all in awe of him. So, and, and, and he can read through that. The whole thing is ostentatious the whole way through. But most of our pride is much more camouflaged than that. So if God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble, wouldn't you like to know whether or not you are proud? Or whether at God, before God, you can, well, no, you can't say, Lord, Lord, thank you, I'm humble, fine, I, I see it now. No, don't do that. That's not something you can do. But you could identify areas of pride for the sake of your relationship with God and others. And it's so that you can repent.
and turn away from it and live a life of grace. Pride is like a cat that has nine lives, except it has a thousand lives. You think you took care of it here and you come around the corner and there it is staring in your face. That is pride. So here we have three characteristics. How did, I, how did I say that? Three different heart realities. One is pride. The other is humility. And the third one is a false humility. Now, pride is the opposite of humility. Humility, humility dependent and all that, and then pride is, you know, the other. But false humility is a counterfeit humility. In the fact that it looks in some ways like humility, but it's not real. So we like to go down through that. And um, I actually have uh, a few charts. I, I, I'm using a chart here. And I actually have some extra ones. If anyone of you don't want to write everything down, you can ask for a chart afterwards. So I'm going to first look what pride is in a number of points. Then we're going to look at false humility. Then we're going to go true humility. And we're going to go back and forth on them. Pride is being self-conceited. Thinking too highly of yourself. An exaggerated opinion or an exalted view of yourself. That means basically your opinion of yourself is higher than both others and God's. Now, false humility is is a self-defeating mindset and a poor self-image, evaluating oneself too negatively, such as, I'm a failure, I'm worthless, I can't do anything right, no one knows me. I might have said it here before, but 20-some years ago, there was a man that I just shared my heart of how I felt when I came into the presence of um, spiritual giants, you know, of people who are, you know, real Christians. And I'm just a young Christian, and I have my struggles, and I have my fears, and, and I come into their presence, I, I feel this way. And he said, that's an inverted form of pride. It's, it's, it's an inferiority, but it's actually pride because you're concerned of what people think of you. So pride is thinking too highly of yourself. False humility is thinking too lowly of yourself. True humility, self-forgetfulness, selflessness, not self-centered, not fearful about what others think of you, or preoccupied with self-concerns. Not fearful about what others think of you. You know, the fear of man is pride. I guess we all knew that, right? True humility. Okay, here's another one. We're going to start with pride again. Is vanity and vainglory. Excessive display and boasting of one's appearance, one's qualities, one's abilities, and one's achievements. This is the classic and overt example of pride, the kind that makes other people sick. False humility is the tendency to be self-despising or to belittle oneself, 
to be self-depreciating around others, excessively modest due to feeling inferior, useless, or unworthy. And I would, I, I've done this. I come here, you know, don't expect too much. It's just me. I'm just going to share and, and I'll have very much to give, but I'll give what I have. Uh, false humility. <laughs> it's a, sometimes called a disclaimer, but sometimes disclaimers are okay. But, True humility is a balanced view of self and a good understanding of personal strengths and weaknesses and a good understanding of one's role and position in the wider community and society. Okay, pride, again, is self-centered, self-seeking, and selfish. Concerned chiefly and only with yourself and your advantage to the exclusion of others. Now, false humility is preoccupied with anxious concerns about oneself. Can't focus on others. You see the connection between false humility and pride is very clear. It's a preoccupation of it being preoccupied with yourself. The one is, I'm good. The other is, oh, I, I don't know how, you know, anxiety and all those things. True humility is self-giving and self-sacrificing for the sake of others in order to help and encourage to serve and care for others. Okay, pride. Selfish, is selfish ambition and a drive to get ahead of others at their expense. That pretty well describes the corporate world in many places, not exclusively, not all. False humility is being a people pleaser, does whatever others want, regardless of what is the prudent or right thing to do. Now, you understand, now, why would a people pleaser be false humility? You might have that clear in your mind or not. It had to be think a little bit. Because you're still preoccupied with self. You're not concerned about the other person. It's about you. And so you will do what that person wants because of what it does for you. True humility is lowly of heart. Treats everyone with respect and care and concern, regardless of their status, position, or worthiness, not playing favorites. Okay, pride is being domineering and overbearing, too demanding, too opinionated, too outspoken, too assertive. The other is a false humility is to be timid or insecure, lacking in self-assurance, afraid to take initiative, afraid to speak up when to be or be assertive when needed. But true humility is simply other focus, mindful of others' interests and concerns and ready to put aside personal preferences to serve others. Uh, Two more here. I don't think I'll skip any. Pride treats others as inferiors or unworthy of your care and concern. 
You remember the time that Jesus, the, the, the mothers brought their children to Jesus to bless. And the disciples said, nah, nah, he don't have time for that. That was an expression of we have more important things to do. The false humility is overly dependent on what others think. Lacks prudent to think and judge rightly. Humility is to be servant-hearted, ready to serve others, wholly for their good, without seeking personal gain. And then the last one, and I can't miss this one. Proud people are unteachable. They refuse correction. They resist feedback. False humility is fearful of correction and feedback because of low self-worth or poor self-image. Humility is teachable, receptive to receiving correction, training, and feedback. In John chapter 5, the disciples, not disciples, Jesus was in conflict with the Jews. And he said one verse here. He said, how can you believe you which receive honor of one another and seek not the honor that comes from God alone or only. In other words, humility, true humility before God is ultimately what God thinks, not what people think. Now, it's true that God uses people. We're not an island. We need to hear each other. You understand that? But ultimately, we are here to please God. We're here to bring glory to God and not ourselves. We're here to please God and not people. Andrew Murray said, The humble man feels no jealousy or envy. He can praise God when others are preferred and blessed before him. He can bear to hear others praise while he is forgotten because, why? Because he had received the spirit of Jesus, who pleased not himself and who sought not his own honor. Therefore, in putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, he has put on the heart of compassion and kindness and meekness and long-suffering and humility. So the humble man has received the spirit of Jesus. And I think I think that's probably what it means there in Peter when it says, um, be clothed with humility. You could say be clothed with the Lord Jesus Christ. Hudson Taylor was scheduled to speak at a large Presbyterian church in Australia. The moderator of the service introduced the missionary in eloquent and glowing terms. He told the large congregation all that Taylor had accomplished in China and then represented him as our illustrious guest. And Taylor got up and he stood quiet for a moment. Then he said, dear friends, I am a little servant of an illustrious master. If you live your life that way, you are an humble person. And the grace of God, which was evident in Taylor's life, will be evident in your and my life. And John Flavel, I don't know who that is, he said, They that know God will be humble, and they that know themselves cannot be 
proud. God resisteth the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I wonder. Obviously, pride is not an off and on switch. It's not on now. Now you're proud. Off. Now I'm not. It's a, it's a continuum. We're, we're children of God. We're God's children. We are God's family. He cares for us and He blesses us and graces us and He disciplines us. But pride and humility is like a dimmer switch. You know, you're exhibiting, I don't know if there's anybody who has no, I don't know. I, I, it's so hard to see, you don't even know when you have it. Obviously, um, hindsight, as I look back over my life, I can see a lot of pride that I had not a clue that I had back then. Now I wonder what kind of pride do I have now that I'll look forward, look back, say, oh yeah, huh, there it was. But it's God's will. He says he resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. We do want God's work. We do want his kingdom to move forward. We do want to be successful. We do want to... That's successful, huh? Okay. (laughs) You know what I mean? In the right way. We do want our church to prosper. We do want our families to be godly. We do need humility of heart. Why don't you, if you're able to, let's pray. Let's uh, kneel for prayer. (laughs) Thank you. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for your great mercy to us. That you, by your word, have made things so clear to us. That you, by your grace, have blessed us in so many abundant ways that we do not deserve, never will deserve, never will ever earn or merit your grace or blessing or favor upon us. We won't, but Lord, you have, because of who you are, because of your plan, you have chosen to do that to us. And now, Lord, we're here. We pray. We pray you work in each one of our hearts that we would be who You would like to dwell with closely in such a way because of our our dependency upon you, because of the bankruptcy of our own situation, that we would recognize it and then come to you and find our need and our fulfillment and our strength in you, which is your heart. And Lord, we pray that you work in each one of our lives in that way. And Lord, we pray if there's any here who has resisted your call, and has said, no, I don't need you. I'm good enough. I pray, Lord, that they would come to the reality of their need for you and repent and turn. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. I gave my heart to the Lord when I was 13. Um, it was during a lot of change in our family. 
my dad was in Guatemala picking up my little brother Trevor. And when I first approached my mom about this anyway, and she asked me to wait until dad got home so we could all talk together. Anyway, when he got back, we all three sat down and we prayed together. And I confessed my sins and I gave my life over to God. And that was definitely the best decision I ever made in my life. Um, The next day, my mom went to the hospital and had my little sister, Christy. So that was an extreme amount of change in one week for our whole family. Um, We had two two new little people in our family and a new Christian. So that was a turning point in my life. Going to Guatemala as a school teacher for Steve Martin's children when I was 17 was another life-changing experience. I made many mistakes as a first-time teacher, and I learned a lot. But it was good for me to experience a different culture, to learn a new language, um, to relate to people who grew up completely different than I grew up. My family changed churches while I was down in Guatemala, so I came back home to a new church and new faces at Living Hope Christian Fellowship. Um, Another experience, experience that helped me grow was teaching at City Children's Ministries. I helped at Elm Street before I went down to Guatemala when I was about 16, 17, and then in Living Hope's ministry in Reading when I got back from Guatemala. That definitely broadened my worldview um, and gave me a burden for America and all the hurting people and the broken families out there. And the children probably taught me just as much as I taught them. Um, it shows you how blessed we are and how much we have to be thankful for and how many opportunities we have out there to reach out if we would just look for them. I taught one year of junior high school at Olive Branch Christian Academy when I was 20. I love my students, and I love teaching, and again, I learned so much. Um, Investing in other people makes you hold a higher standard for yourself, knowing that you are influencing them. And I grew close to God that year just because I had to rely so much on his strength, and I knew the only way I was going to do that was with his help. I started dating at the end of that school year, and I went to SMBI that fall. I went knowing no one, and I came back blessed with many new friends. It was good for me to branch out and to build new relationships, and I was taught so much and stretched so much in my Christian life. I got married in March, and that was the second best decision of my life. I'm blessed with a godly husband who balances me out. He has strengths for my many weaknesses. Um, I have much to learn as a new wife, and getting married has a way of showing you where you need to grow. I'm blessed with wonderful parents, a dad who coached me through life, and he pushed me out of my comfort zone. He taught me about relationships and the importance of loving people no matter where they are at in life. And a mom who encouraged and supported me, she picked up the loose ends and she did a lot of behind-the-scenes work and she blessed me in many ways. I'm where I am today because of God, my parents, and my husband. I've been blessed by all of you here already and I'm excited about all the potential this church has as God's people. Thank you for being welcoming and for giving of yourselves to us already. I hope we can bless you all in some way in return. Well, I was uh, born and raised in a very similar setting as Natalie with um, parents who cared much about me as a, as a boy and wanted to pour and invest all they could into me and who I was. <clears throat> but even though I had uh, everything going for me, I still realized as a young boy I was a sinner and needed, um, needed Christ as my Savior. When I was 12, I gave my heart to him at our uh, church's revivals and uh, I confessed my sins there and asked um, Jesus to be the Savior of my life. And uh, then I began my my Christian journey. And as I look back and and I I view my youth years, and I say youth years, particularly the 16 to 19 range, um, 
One regret I have is the amount of time I and energy I put into things that did not matter or would you say are, um, were of no eternal value. And <clears throat> I'm going to just inject this here at this point that when, when one of the first times I, we visited Harmony when we were recording, um, some of you young men got up and uh, gave your uh, gave you some reports from Africa. I think Jeffrey and uh, Josh and uh, Josh Peachy, uh, different of yous. And I remember sitting there listening to your uh, testimonies and how you went out and you preached and you were stretched. And <clears throat> I I was really challenged by that and, and saw something in the youth here at uh, their harmony that I did not. They were doing things and were investing their times better than what I did as a youth. And I want to just in, encourage you um, don't lose that. You younger ones coming on. The uh, uh, another thing I, I remember when I when I heard how it was young boys that started um, the Pottsville work. It got a vision for lost souls and younger ones. Don't don't lose that vision. That um, you have time, you have energy, uh, and, and put it towards things that have eternal value. Um, there's nothing wrong with volleyball and, and hunting, but volleyball hunting snowboarding those things that look fun really in the end if you put all your energy in that as a young man uh you aren't going to have um they aren't lasting they don't give you a, a sense of satisfaction um even though in and of themselves they may not seem wrong but the devil wants us as as youth to look at those things that you have to have that to have fun you have to have that to get by so i just want to give that an encouragement to the youth um to Keep doing, and that's something we see here. You have a burden for the loss. <clears throat> when I was about 19, I went to a Bible school in uh, Washington where I knew only a handful of people, and that was new for me. I, most things I had done, I did with a lot of friends, and, and it was really good. It, it um, stretched me out of my comfort zone, and there were a lot of older youth there. I uh, learned to know a number of, of older, mature youth that had seen uh, life from a different, and they had a little different perspective than I did, and they helped me realize and, and see some things in my own little Lebanon County uh, mindset. They helped me get beyond that, and um, spent a lot of time in prayer, and uh, that was a, definitely a big stepping stone for me to uh, see a little more where I was at in my spiritual journey, and and uh, I would say a, a strong pillar in my life. Soon after that, when I got back, I went with a group of youth to New York City, and um, it just happened to be, or I say happened to be, I, I, I do believe it was God that had us go that weekend. We didn't know it, but at the time it was May 21, 2011, which some of you may remember, but um, that happened to be the weekend where a man had come up with that date that this is when Christ was going to return, and it was a big deal. And around here, you didn't hear about it quite as much, but in New York City, this was big. Everyone for the most part, knew about it and was talking about it. There were signs everywhere. And when they see this group of what looked to them as some quaint people, they were sure we were um, part of that movement. And it gave an excellent opportunity for us to show them the truth of what actually we do feel about Jesus' return. And it really shoved me out of my comfort zone. We had people coming right up to us blatantly mocking us um, as that it was a, Christ was going to return at 6 in the evening and we were there Saturday witnessing and singing and People were, had countdowns and, and, and were just mocking us, but it gave us a real uh, way to reach out to these people. And we went out into one park, 
and I, I never experienced something like that be, before and ever really since. You could feel strongly the power of darkness and, and the power of, of, um, of Christ with our group. Um, there was a mock crucifixion in the one corner, and there was a, 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 a group of gays had a procession going, and they were just mocking all because of this thing of Christ returning. Uh, and we came in, we just started singing right in the mix, midst of them, and it... Um, that weekend gave me and a lot of my friends a, a uh, much more of a burden for the lost and showed us that actually the power of darkness and the sickness of sin and, and also um, how and many people are in such bondage and how sin truly does put people in bondage. Um, and uh, so that, that weekend really gave me a, a, a new perspective as well. Soon after that, about within a year, we began, uh, I began courting Natalie. And um, soon after that, we began discussing and, and praying about where God wanted us and uh, where we wanted to, what we wanted to do for church and that type of thing. And um, we enjoyed visiting um, Harmony. He's reached out to us. And um, uh, I know John's, it meant a lot to us how you uh, took us and gave us some. Um, marriage counseling there at your home even though you did not know us it was a way for us to to learn to know you and i we definitely appreciated that and many other of you all uh, reached out to us in a special way and um we both have a burden for the loss and we want to do what we can to to reach out and do things for the kingdom we both um have been involved in, in city ministries as she had mentioned and we want to do what we can and if if you see areas where you can give us pointers to do that better to do it more effectively please please tell us um we have a lot of areas to grow, and we we uh, covet your prayers in our life. Um, so I think that's pretty much what we have to share.